Coming up on our latest The Lively Experiment, Governor McKee lays out his priorities for the coming year in policy and in spending. We'll have the details. And we lost a member of the Lively Experiment family this week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Bill Bartholomew, founder of the Bartholomew Town podcast, Providence Journal reporter Antonia Nuri Farzan, and political contributor Don Roach. Hello and welcome to Lively and what turned out to be a very busy week at the State House. Governor McKee laid the framework for what he hopes to get done this year in a 35-minute State of the State address in the House chamber on Tuesday night. Then Thursday afternoon, he released a proposed $13.7 billion budget for next year. It includes modest tax relief in a variety of areas and more money for staff to oversee the construction of affordable housing and take on take care of the state's homeless population. Here's some of what the governor had to say on Tuesday. And I'm proud to say that Rhode Island is ready. We are ready to raise incomes for families across our state. We are ready to improve education outcomes for our students. We're ready to build a healthier Rhode Island. And we're ready to ensure that everyone benefits from this work. First, let's reduce Rhode Island's sales tax. Right now, Rhode Island is the tide for the second highest state sales tax in the country. We're ready to change that. Rhode Island's sales tax was increased during the banking crisis with the promise that it would be reduced when we were back on solid financial ground. That promise was never kept. Now is the time to make it right. So Rhode Island, it is our time. We have momentum, and if we keep up the tremendous determination we displayed during the pandemic, we will be ready to embrace the significant opportunity ahead. We have the tools. And with all of us working together, we have the team to be successful. Let's go write our state's next chapter. Bill, let's begin with you. You were in the chamber that night. Set the scene for me. What was the atmosphere like? Well, the atmosphere, there was, there was some buzz before the speech, but I think overall, during the speech, there wasn't too much adrenaline at play. It was a pretty subdued General Assembly and a, a generally subdued audience overall. And I think that's because what we heard was a pretty moderate, even conservative Democratic agenda from the governor. And that's something that the progressives in the room, even some of the more left-leaning, centrist Democrats weren't too excited about. And you got the sense that although the governor delivered a competent address, it wasn't the performance that a lot of people were looking for. As you were listening to it, what would you think? Uninspired. Uh, that's probably the word that I would use. Well, let's um, just say, let's put it on the table. Dan McKee is not Barack Obama. We can we can agree to that. Yeah, let's, I mean, take away kind of like his style. The content was uninspiring. I mean, we have a 7% sales tax, and he's proposing 
uh, a relief that would save you know Rhode Islanders $77 a year. That's not very that's not very inspiring. The word you use was modest. I would say very minimal. Um, it's not even modest. And so he he's able to not make the progressives aren't happy, the conservatives aren't happy. And he's he's able to be that that moderate voice, I guess. And then we know the General Assembly ultimately what gets proposed and what's going to happen through the sausage grinder, it'll change. Um, any thoughts as you watch that? Yeah, I mean, it does seem like the sales tax proposal, no one's super excited about it. On the right, you have people kind of saying, this isn't changing very much. This isn't as much as we'd like to see in terms of relief. And on the left, you have people saying, well, if we've got a surplus, why aren't we using it to fund social services, social programs, all these programs that need more funding around the state? I wonder, too, 13.7, Susie Yankee, who has been on this panel, she's the Republican chair, immediately put the clip from the debates where I wondered, with all this influx of federal money over the last couple of years, where really is the budget? I understand the COVID money. Well, now we see it goes up even more. And during the debates, the governor said, well, anybody who knows budgeting knows that it's going to go down. He, he expected it to be $11, $12 billion, and now we see it's 13.7. You wonder whether that's sustainable for the long run. Yeah, you definitely have to wonder that, but I, and this may be um, maybe biased here, but I, I don't know of any Democratic governor who would actually reduce the budget. And so Democratic governor candidates have been saying they're going to reduce the budget, reduce the budget. But when's the last time that has happened? So I didn't expect anything more than what we got with this budget. Well, I think that's a fair point. I mean, realistically, look, the idea is the budget last year was it included a lot of federal dollars and it's we're kind of in unusual times. So it's a tough compare and contrast. It's not like the the budget ballooned to 20 billion or something like that either. I mean, it's it's basically the same. But it wasn't 9.45 years ago. Very true, and I and I think to Don's point, you know, democratic policies are are going to expand uh, the required dollars for sure. And in the room, there there was some whispering of you know, hey, look, there's a lot of programs we have to fund, and so as a result, where's the money going to come from? You know, and you're looking at it. But what's kind of bad is that uh, with the surplus, you, we're not seeing a lot of dollars going back to Rhode Island residents. Very, to use your word again, modest amounts. And that, to me, just seems uh, very unfair to the taxpayer. If you do the calculation, if you buy something for $5,000, you're going to save $8. If you buy a $25,000 car, you're going to save $40. So he had talked about 6.25, but I didn't see, and maybe I missed it, that there would, okay, this year we're going to do this, and then the next year, I didn't see that in any of the out years. Do you think some people were waiting for the big, the big idea that was going to come? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's no, they haven't announced any plan for future years. They're basically saying we're going to see how it goes. We're going to see if we have the revenue stream to do that. And yeah, I think it was WPRI had the stat that it would add up to $77 per year that people save over the course of the year for per Rhode Islander. And yeah, you're not really going to feel that over the course of the year. It looks like the four of us could go to the movies, but we can't buy popcorn. That we have to bring, <laughs> you have to sneak your own in from Walmart. What about, he, you know, he included uh, the money for uh, abortion uh, being federal, uh, uh, State subsidized, yep. obviously. You know, Bishop Tobin, of course, was tweeting against that. It looks like they have the votes for that. Do you see a battle on that, or do you think there's going to be a little bit of pushback in well, the chamber? Well, I asked Speaker Shikarchi right after the, the state of the state on the floor, do you have the votes? And he said, we'll see. And I think that's really where it is. What kind of horse trading is going to take place? You know, that's the one dangling carrot that leadership has right now for the expanding progressive caucus, and even really, quite frankly, the moderate caucus that would want to see this go through. Um, but I don't know that the speaker knows if 
not only on the access to abortion, but a lot of these policies, if he has the votes. It's a combination of a small but vo vocal conservative block and a lot of progressives that might try to throw a wrench into this budget. You know, he also talked about, early on it was just one line, he said, let's pass, uh, I don't know, sensible gun control legislation. Last year, it was Uvalde that really drove it. Nobody was really thinking about gun control. So I wonder, you know, every year we see the opposite sides get into the state house. whether this is a year or whether ultimately that might get lost in the long run or whether you think gun control will be on the, on the front burner this year. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we were just talking about the EACA. Um, that came up last year because of Roe, and there was a push here to do something in response to it. And honestly, it's sad to say, but it wouldn't be shocking if there was another tragic shooting. It happens all the time. So there could be something like that that drives it back into the news again and brings that issue back on the front burner. What else are you going to be looking at for this session? To me, just focusing on the taxpayer, that's what I would like the focus to be on. So whether it's, you know, abortion funding or sensible gun control, can we just talk about people and the impact inflation has had uh, on taxpayers? That's what I'd like the focus to be on. You see other states cutting checks, even Massachusetts. And I think a lot of people thought we have $600 million. It's almost like they're cons they know the out years could be tough, but it's like, why? That is our money. Right. Why aren't we getting that back more now? And the governor will argue I'm putting together 100 million of tax cuts. So he the corporate tax goes from 400 to 375. Nobody's really feeling that. And the and the, and the gas tax, it's uh, eliminating an increase. It's not like it's going to go down at all three cents. What what would you suggest if you were in his chair and you could wave the magic wand? What would you like to see? I would definitely uh lower the sales tax significantly. I think 5% would give us an advantage and people would feel it. it I think it would actually inspire people to come to Rhode Island versus, you know, going over to Massachusetts or Connecticut as, as they sometimes do. So I think that would be something that would at least make Rhode Islanders feel like, all right, the governor is listening. He's doing, uh, proposing something that's actually significant. All right. Housing. Josh Saul, we know, um, had a very short tenure here. It's interesting, Stephen Pryor, the worst-kept secret, right, that he was going to be brought back for housing secretary. He seems like an intriguing fit. I think he's the right fit, right? I mean, you, you can make an argument that there's all kinds of people from the advocate community. There's all kinds of people from the private sector that could step up. The number one thing that, that caused what I call the fall of Saul is his inability to communicate, both in front of the media and internally with the very uh, nuanced players in this field, which includes advocates, people who are unhoused, people in the banking sector, people in the political sector, even to an extent in the judicial sector, putting that all together. And I think that's something that, that Stephen Pryor will be uniquely qualified to do. He's also been, you know, he's, he's come into favor in the McKee administration, and there won't be this cloud of who is this guy? You know who he is. You know what you're going to get. He's a free agent right now, and it makes sense to bring him in to coordinate this effort. I wondered with Josh Saul, we were talking right before we came on, how he kind of, he didn't seem to be, McKee appointed him, obviously. We didn't really know a lot about him or what his background was, and I wonder if that led to some of the execution problems. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, he was coming in from New York, from the Blasio administration, coming from outside, and essentially came in and said a lot of things have to change. I mean, one thing that hasn't gotten a lot of focus is he came up with this organizational plan, essentially saying all these disparate players and state government in the housing space should be brought under his office. So essentially coming in and saying, you should all be working under me, which I'm sure didn't make
make him a lot of friends. And I will be curious to see if Stephen Pryor goes through with that plan and continues calling for that. Because Josh Saul may have had a good point. He was essentially saying, you know, we are really fragmented here. That is slowing down building housing. That's slowing down our effectiveness. But I also wonder, too, we know that money doesn't always solve the problem. you got this a quarter of a billion dollars for housing, but it didn't seem to be like there was anything going. And I, I sense frustration. Speaker Sakarji said that, look, we've given you the money. What are you doing with it, right? Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, uh, Bill mentioned why Pryor's the right guy. And what I didn't hear is he's going to bring innovation. He's actually going to solve the problem. What I more heard which I think is accurate in Rhode Island, is he knows the right people, he can speak to the media, but that doesn't mean anything's going to um, get done. And it seems like Saul proposed something that was very sensible but hard to do in Rhode Island, which is, like, bring government agencies under one umbrella so that we actually function more efficiently. And so in Rhode Island, we've got all kinds of different fiefdoms. And so I, I, I hope that we centralize things, but... I don't expect anything more from someone who actually knows how Rhode Island politics work because I just haven't seen anything different. I think that's a fair point. The problem is that in Rhode Island, you've got in those the category of fiefdoms, 39 cities and towns with a lot of this stuff comes down to municipal zoning and it comes down to how a, a, an approach is taken on short-term rentals and student housing and, you know, tax incentives. And use and of old buildings. Use of old buildings, use of... You know, and I agree, there's a there's a need for innovation, a need to look at old mill buildings, old school buildings, whatever it is. People will live in different ways, tiny houses. You know, what about being able to park an RV? What's that? Old churches. Old churches, yeah. absolutely. I mean, let's innovate. Let's let's think of, of ways to to address the problem in, in, in a way that hasn't been thought of yet. I mean that you're right. We need that innovation at the same time. You need that connector to be able to go to Charlie Lombardi and, you know, whoever the town manager is in Westerly and say, hey, look, how do we get this problem, advance the ball in this problem in a meaningful way, like now, not in 10 years? But in my town, they had mothballed a couple of schools because, you know, the population goes up and down. And the word on the original bill that went out last year was you got to put it on a registry. So people immediately, oh, it's a registry and the state's going to come in and then they're going to have to make that available for housing. Well, the League of Cities and Towns, you know, went ballistic and they wrote that out. But that's really going to be the devils in the details as to not one size fits all and in various communities it sounds great on paper oh let's use vacant buildings but i think at the local pushback is going to be a problem don't you yeah i mean actually i was just talking this week to the sponsor of the bill you mentioned the create homes act megan common she said they are they are re reintroducing that they are tweaking it to incorporate a lot of the feedback and what they're looking at more is kind of the idea of a land bank so we're talking more unused land because like you said the schools that did raise a lot of questions. And yeah, that is the challenge. You do have all the pushback coming from towns. I think that was part of the issue, um, like Bill was getting at with Josh Saul, is he was someone who, because he was coming from outside, didn't really have those allies, didn't really have connections, didn't really have people who could kind of help him out and smooth his path with that. Did you get the sense that maybe he didn't seek that out or there was an immediate bias and we've all, you know, seen, oh, he's not from around here. So was it a combination of those things that maybe led to his downfall? It's probably a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, like, like everyone said, there is not great communication. Um, but yeah, at the same time, people are skeptical of outsiders. And I think when you are bringing someone in from the outside, you are putting them in a really tough spot, just expecting them to jump into this really complicated landscape, which has a lot of different players, a lot of different interest groups, and just saying, here, fix this problem.
Finally on this, the homeless problem every year. I mean, you know, of course, it played out on the court and the front steps of the state house. But again, money doesn't solve all things because they, they couldn't get people enough people to run the armory and all that. And that's going to, you know, it's affordable housing is one chunk of it, but homelessness also is. And that's not going away. Right. And homelessness is a problem that has been around since, since the dawn of time. And I, I wish I, I had the solution for it as well, but it just fe felt like, you know, what happened over at the state house was just, uh, just a stain on everybody involved. And it's, it's just a, it's just a really sad problem, but we've got $250 million. We should be able to make some kind of a dent. And if we can't make any kind of a dent, that's terrible. What I do appreciate about Saul was that he didn't just start spending the money, which is what most people who are in his position get it out the door. Right. right? They, they would have done that. And so I, I appreciate that. All right. Over the next couple of years, uh, keep an eye on the nursing home industry in Rhode Island. It is facing a lot of challenges. And Antonio, you had a great piece a couple of weeks ago on a bill was passed. So set the table and what the industry is bumping up against this legislation and the economics are really going to be important. Thanks. Yeah. So essentially back in 2021, the General Assembly passed a law that gave Rhode Island the highest standards in the country for nursing home staffing. And you can look, there's a lot of research that shows that correlates with safety, with resident well-being, a lot of things that we do want to have. Um, the problem is that there is a labor shortage. There is an industry-wide staffing crisis. And the nursing homes have been saying from day one, we just don't have enough people. We can't comply with that law. So we should be finding out any day now um, what the bill is actually going to look like for the fines for the nursing homes that have been not in compliance. Uh, there are some delays getting the laws implemented. So um, last time I checked, they had not actually gotten that bill yet, but they were racking up fines in the second half of 2022. And the estimate um, that I got from the industry group, the Rhode Island Healthcare Association, is $12 million just for the third quarter. Who was driving that bill initially? Was it the union trying to make sure that they were staffed and of the ratio, what, of, of workers to patients then, right? Yeah, it was a coalition of groups. I believe you had a lot of um, groups that basically advocate for older people who are part of it. But I would say the union, SEIU, they represent workers at a bunch of nursing homes around Rhode Island. They were definitely um, probably the main driver of that bill. But you see both sides, because if you're a nursing home owner, a lot of it relies on Medicaid reimbursement. And, all, and, and you know, there's only so much money to play with, right? So the, what they're claiming, we can't make this work financially? Right, yeah. They say we can't raise our prices because they don't set the prices. That comes from Medicaid. And that's something definitely where both sides, the union and the industry, agree that Medicaid is not paying enough. You wonder where the nursing home industry is going to be two, three, four years out. Um, they're really up against it. Yeah, talk about innovation and how things are going to have to be thought of in a new way. Look, you know, there are a lot of complex funding aspects to this. Um, a big question that I have is, you know, what about wage increases for workers to incentivize more workers, you know, and again, I understand there's a ceiling in terms of available funds, but that's a problem we see in healthcare throughout the systems. Um, Hasn't and the, some of that gone up, though, the reality that you can go work at Amazon for $20 an hour or whatever it is that they, they've had, to, and that's some of the economic pressure, they've had to raise wages. No question, I think, and it's improved from pre-pandemic, right? But again, you know, what is a livable wage? What would make somebody who you know, that's physical labor, that's emotional investment. You're around sometimes, you know, frail, sick, and sometimes uh, you form attachments to these people. So, you know, it's, it's an investment, and you have to ask yourself, if you're a free agent in the labor force, is it worth it? 
And um, again, I know that there's a cap. Um, I just think it's a problem in our society as a whole where, you know, we just take for granted that people are going to, $20 an hour. I mean, good luck. Talk about a housing crisis. I don't know what you could rent for $20 an hour right now in Rhode Island. So, you know, that's, that's a more, that's a big question. It's not about nursing homes. Well, that's a macro issue. Macro, I mean, pre-pandemic, you know, you could get housing reasonably. Well, that puts pressure on everything as it goes up. Inflation and housing costs and CNAs. I mean, what they were being paid before the pandemic was criminal. Exactly. Just making not very much. And I think there's also a problem with, like, the, the paid staff of the nursing home versus the um, people who work for a staffing agency. What I don't quite understand, and Tony, I don't know if you know this, is how can like staffing agencies charge so much and pay their workers more than the folks who are you know paid by the actual nursing home and how, how does that inter- interact i don't know how that works That's a great question do you know yeah i mean i don't have to totally answer to your question but essentially what you have is what a lot of people have described me as price gouging on the parts of the staffing agency you know the nursing home needs to fill a spot they need to have someone watching this floor and they don't have enough staff so they go to the agency which maybe charges them three times what they'd be paying someone on salary. And if if you are a nursing home employee, that's part of where the drain is going because you can work for a staffing agency, you can hop around, you can make a lot more money than you would even as being a union member at one of the unionized nursing homes. So there's an obvious appeal to people to do that. Um, So one thing that both the union and the industry are on the same side on is saying we need to crack down on these agencies. There needs to be some way to rein this in so that they're not gouging the nursing homes. But that would have to be regu- that would have to be state regulation. Exactly. And then you got people who are like, well it's free market and, and do we really want to step in and regulate, right? That I, I I can see that, but if if the nursing homes are able to pay the staffing agencies an amount of money where the staffing agencies can pay their employees a lot more than the actual employees of the Why nursing home. Why can't that just they right. pay their own people? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, so, but overall, we just an employment shortage of people who are wanting to work in different jobs. That's just everywhere in the in this though in the workplace. All right, let's do this. We got we do have a couple of things to get to, but let's do uh, let's go early to outrageous and or kudos, Mr. Bartholomew. What do you have this week? Well, you know they've done they've improved this a little bit, but the the Pell Newport Bridge reconstruction on the Newport side is completely unacceptable in terms of the layout that they've created over there. Now look, it's a temporary situation, I get it, Um, but if you're getting onto the bridge, for example, I was getting on last night, you're met with blinking lights, you know, cones that don't match, barrels in the road, you're not sure if you should stop, you don't know if you're going onto the off-ramp, they have blinding work lights, it's just a terrible situation. You've seen uh, Representative Lauren Carson complain about this. You've seen the city council complain about this. We addressed it on the radio. I, I, I've, I had some, some reps on and I got a response from Director Alvidi to his credit. But the situation right now is it's just one of those things that is making a lot of people uncomfortable. Is it the end of the world? No. Has there been a fatality there? No. But, you know, if you're going to have a, a temporary situation in terms of, of road construction, you need to think it through in a way that the most timid driver is going to be able to navigate it without stress and for me even as someone who goes to Newport several times a week and is used to the new layout uh, in the rain last night it's very uncomfortable and and it seems like it's a ticking time bomb before someone literally goes up the wrong side of the Newport Bridge. What's the timetable though for so this is a temporary and it always used to be the road to nowhere and you know trying to get right. the high lie and coming off the you know from Newport you're from Newport um, has DOT said when they're going to 
ultimately? I mean, is that a year? Is it two years? You know, I'm, they may have, they may very well have said it. I don't know exactly what the timeline is. <laughs> You're thinking is about right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, especially as we get to the summer. Yeah, I think it's done by summer. If, Good luck. If, <laughs> if it's not done by summer, you're, you're going to have some serious traffic issues. You're, and, and again, it's just a stressful situation that residents are vocalizing. They've addressed it a little bit, but it's still not acceptable. It's not up to the standards we should demand. All right. Don, outrage or this week? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, the governor said in his address that Rhode Island has momentum, and he, he never tires of saying that. And when he said that, I'm like, what, what kind of momentum is he talking about? Um, the governor has very good intentions, and you know that. But what I worry about are his actions and his intentions don't match up, and he makes nobody happy. And so the kudo is, thank you, Governor, for having great intentions, but the outrage is we need you to have some more teeth behind uh, your initiatives and really think about the Rhode Island taxpayer and do something, even if it angers some people. They did that whole thing last year, you remember, and it was very intentional. And we get all the press releases, you know, momentum was the thing, right? We're going here, we're going here, we're going here. But it didn't seem to really resonate with the public, and I don't, I don't know why. I mean, if you say that you're going to spend $250 million and spend $0 after a year plus, it's hard to say you have momentum. So it's not going to resonate and connect with the Rhode Island voter. And so I'm sure a number of his different programs are falling under the same category. So he's got to actually do something. Great. Antonio, and first, welcome. I didn't Thank give you. you the official welcome. <laughs> nice to have you on board. I don't know why it took so long, but we're glad to have you here. Do you have an outrage or a kudos? This sure, week? I'll do a kudos, and thank you for inviting me. Um, one thing that stood out to me this week when the Attorney General announced charges in the 610 connector project with the dumping of contaminated soil, um, I'd missed this the first time around, but the way that really got brought to light was that the bulldozer operators thought something was off, and their union actually went and did soil testing, found that the soil was contaminated, and brought it to the state and essentially forced this investigation. Um, so I want to give kudos to them for actually doing that, protecting their workers. Um, just a few days ago, there was a study, that came, a report that came out essentially um, with union participation being right now at a historic low, the lowest it's ever been. And I think a lot of times there is a lot of cynicism about, you know, how's the union going to help me? Where are my dues going to go? But that's a pretty good example of dues actually going to help and the members. And it makes you wonder, where are the state inspectors on this, right? I mean, they did inspect it, but, you know, the, the union got their own soil testing. They got that done first, and they said, this is contaminated. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Bill, good to see you. Antonio, thank you for your debut. And Don, nice to have you back after a little hiatus. Finally this week, we pause to note the passing of someone who sat in this chair for five years. Jim Hagan, who was the second moderator in the nearly 35 years we've been doing this program. As Jim likes to tell the story, he came for three weeks as a fill-in and wound up staying for five years. Before joining us, Jim had a long career in the corporate world and served on both his local town council in North Smithfield and later in the state senate for five terms. He then joined the Providence Chamber of Commerce as its president. That background gave him a unique perspective from the moderator's seat when top elected officials and lawmakers joined the panel. During a 30th anniversary program we taped five years ago with all of Lively's moderators, Jim told us how much he enjoyed bringing people with different perspectives and ideologies together to debate the issues of the day. Jim, we appreciate all you did for us and for the state of Rhode Island. 
And exactly. the experiment will continue. <laughs> Thanks for watching. experiment is generously underwritten by hi I'm John Hazen White jr. for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS <laughs>